0: Good morning everyone, I am Nayaswami Maria and with me is Nayaswami Ananta and our speaker today will be Badri. I'd like to welcome you all on behalf of us, uh, each of us. We're broadcasting live from the Temple of Light at Ananda Village today and I want to just thank you for sharing with us in this celebration of these deep and powerful teachings this Sunday morning. I'm reading from Rays of the One Light, and this is week number eight. And the title of today's reading is, (laughs) okay, can man see God? Thank you. Truth is one and eternal. Realized oneness with it in your death deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. There is a saying in chapter 1 of the Gospel of St John that would seem to respond with a definite no to the question, can man see God? The saying is, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Many great saints, however, claim to have seen God. If we ask then, can God be seen? Rather than, can man see God? The answer is, yes, else those saints lied, and the scriptures themselves lied. For Jesus also said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The point is, it is not man, this human body, these human eyes, that sees God. God can be seen only with spiritual vision, with the eye of the soul. As the Bhagavad Gita puts it in the 11th chapter, Thou canst not see me with mortal eyes, therefore I now give thee sight divine. Behold, my supreme power of yoga. With these words, Hari, the exalted lord of yoga, revealed himself to Arjuna in his infinite form. Parmahansa Yogananda, in Autobiography of a Yogi, describes the supernal experience in words more readily comprehensible to modern minds than the poetic phraseology of the Bhagavad Gita. The chapter An Experience in Cosmic Consciousness is one of the most inspiringly beautiful in all mystical literature. Here is a brief excerpt. An oceanic joy broke upon calm, endless, shores of my soul. The Spirit of God, I realized, is exhaustless bliss. His body is countless tissues of light. I saw the divine dispersion of rays pour from an eternal source, blazing into galaxies transfigured with ineffable auras. Again and again, I saw the creative beams condense into constellations, then resolve into sheets of transparent flame. By rhythmic reversion, sextillion worlds passed into diaphanous luster, fire became firmament. I cognized the center of the Empyrean as a point of intuitive perception in my heart. Irradiating splendor issued from my nucleus to every part of the universal structure. The creative voice of God I heard, resounding as Om, the vibration of the cosmic motor. This, so the great masters aver, is what God is. And this also, they insist, is what we are in our deepest reality. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind.
1: Good morning. As Nicewami Maria said, my name is Badri. And it's also a joy for me to welcome you to our Sunday service this morning, at the Temple of Light. I'll begin my portion here with a reading from Paramahansa Yogananda's Whispers from Eternity. This reading is entitled, Demand to See God in Everything. O Father, may I behold thee above, beneath, behind, around, Wherever I turn my gaze, train the children of my senses never to stray from thee who dwellest at the heart of everything. Turn my eyes inward to thy changeless beauty. Attune my ears to silence that I may hear thy subtlest music. Breathe on me the heavenly scent of thy sacred presence. Orient wise, I will worship thee, placing the candles of my five senses on the altar of my love. Thus I will contact thee in the first pale shafts of dawn, absorb thee in the bright light of noon, expand in thee with the hidden glow of twilight, and merge in thee in the silver moonlight. Always will I keep a light on my inner altar, the mystic taper of my love for thee. So then, today's reading, Can Man See God? The reading on the topic is most instructive and helpful, as it alludes to the saints and the masters have been unequivocal in answering, yes, indeed, the great Christian mystic St. Anthony of the desert silenced a great theological debate with the simple words, I have seen him. And As it alludes to again in the Bhagavad Gita, Sri Krishna confers upon his disciple, Arjuna, the divine sight. And the cosmic vision overwhelms him. And again, quoting Jesus Christ from the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so again and again, they're both clearly unequivocal and also emphatic that We must see God, but not with ordinary vision, only with divine sight. This chapter referenced in this reading in Autobiography of a Yogi, an Experience in Cosmic Consciousness, again, is incredibly instructive. Not only is it poetically inspiring in its description of this cosmic vision, it includes the poem Samadhi. Yogananda's incredibly powerful, again, not only description, but experience that he encourages the disciple to memorize even and recite daily as a spiritual practice. And such lines as is quoted in the reading, I cognize the center of the Empyrean as this point of intuitive perception in my heart. This is instructive in that in the midst of this overwhelming cosmic vision, this experience of oceanic joy and divine bliss, this divine sight, both infinite and infinitesimal, as Yogananda describes the the cow moving across from behind the brick wall, and his vision also reaching out to the farthest reaches of the galactic universe and beyond. This intuitive perception of the heart which corroborates with those words of Christ, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so this is instructive as our own heart. As Yogananda also said, center everywhere, circumference nowhere is the nature of God. That within our own hearts, the seed of this divine vision is planted and can grow into this divine experience. I think that perhaps God gives to his devotees just the amount of divine vision they can handle and if they're very sincere perhaps a little bit more but not more than that. It is ultimately through God's grace that that divine vision is beheld and there's another part in this uh, chapter, and Experience in Cosmic Consciousness, which I'll read to you. There's a brief excerpt. This is after Yogananda has had this divine experience of Samadhi. And he says, The cosmic vision left many permanent lessons. By daily stealing my thoughts, I could win release from the delusive conviction that my body was a mass of flesh and bones traversing the hard soil of matter. The breath and the restless mind I saw were like storms which lashed the ocean of light into waves of material forms, earth, sky, human beings, animals, birds, trees. No perception of the infinite as one light could be had except by calming those storms. As often as I silenced the two natural tumults, I beheld the multitudinous waves of creation melt into one lucent sea. Even as the waves of the ocean, their tempest subsiding, serenely dissolve into unity. And so again, throughout this chapter are these instructive uh, little inspirations. And Here is outlined these two natural tumults, as Yogananda describes them, of the breath and the restless mind. And as yogis, practitioners of yoga, we practice this daily, as it says, stilling these two things, the breath and the restless mind, which, as the tempest subsiding in the sea, reflect that cosmic vision of God. The sky above. And so, as yogis, as devotees, our meditation practice is, of course, the foundation for our entire spiritual life. Our devotion, our sadhana is ground zero for all the spiritual progress that we can make towards this divine sight. And, you know, there is another element to this as well that at the core of the spiritual path of seeking God, of seeking this divine sight, there is the ego. There is this element of the ego as identified with our physical body, our personality, um, everything that in our life we perceive as us, as me, as I, that we need to transcend and overcome the ego spiritually. As it says in Yogananda's poem, Samadhi, I, the cosmic sea, watch the little ego floating in me. So, like a little grain of sand or a moat of dust, the ego doesn't become erased, but it's just floating in this infinite sea of consciousness, of joy. And yet, in some ways, when we really earnestly come onto the spiritual path and we're seeking God in our life, it's kind of the beginning of the end, really. We're at a point when, really, we know what we want. And yet, in some ways, too, on the flip side, this is when the real work begins. We have much karma to overcome, to transcend this ego. And so when we really earnestly step foot on the spiritual path, the ego tags along. And it says, I can play this game, too. I'm spiritual. I'm a yogi. And we can become stubborn and narrow-minded and lose sight of that greater vision that we are seeking. I heard an amusing story from a friend recently that illustrated this point well. It's the story of a battleship captain who was at sea uh, doing an exercise in stormy weather. And he was on the bridge of the ship when the lookout called down to him, uh, a light up ahead, sir. And the captain replied, is it steady or moving? And the reply came, steady sir, meaning that they were on a collision course with this other ship. And so the captain dictated a communication to the other ship. And he said, change your bearing, 20 degrees. We're on a collision course. And the reply came back quickly. I advise you to change your bearing, 20 degrees. And this upset the captain. And he replied, I am a captain. You will change your bearing. 20 degrees to avoid collision. And the reply came again. This time, I am a seaman, second class. I advise you change bearing. And by now, the captain was furious. And he replied, I am a battleship. We are on a collision course. Change your bearing or else. And the reply came back, I am a lighthouse. Change your bearing, your call. And so the captain most likely, in his humility, adjusted his course. And isn't it a bit like the stubborn captain and the lighthouse that we can lose sight of the cosmic sea that lies before us, of the innumerable karmas at play, both within us, in our soul, in our soul's evolution, and in the divine lila of God, of God's play without. And so humility is necessary before God as we progress spiritually, that constant self-offering through devotion, through meditation, that will help us to transcend the ego and behold God. Now, back again to an experience in cosmic consciousness. You know, this chapter is only seven pages long, two of them, almost two full pages, are taken up by that poem Samadhi. And yet, as is often with these writings, there's innumerable inspirations and reflections. So again, in this chapter, Experience in Cosmic Consciousness, there's a very remarkable point where, again, this is after Yogananda has had this Samadhi, this experience of oneness with God after he shares with us the poem Samadhi and imparts these teachings and this experience. After all this, a short while later, he comes to his guru, Sri Yukteswar, and he says to him, Sir, when shall I find God? And to the reader, he just had cosmic consciousness, this long-awaited experience of Samadhi. And Sri Yukteswar taught him This art of balanced living, he said, let us sweep the porch and let us walk by the Ganges and imparted to him this sacred teaching of both oneness with God and activity of service. And he says, when shall I find God, Master? And Sri Yukteswar was also very poetic. He replies with this well-known line of, uh, surely you are not expecting some venerable personage that God should be adorning some throne, antiseptic throne in some corner of the cosmos. And he says also, God is not had in miraculous powers. And of course, this teaching is for all of us. Again, that the ego not become bound in this experience, but ever expanded in that divine consciousness. And as Sri Yukteswar instructs him, and Yogananda confirms, It is the experience of God in meditation as ever new joy. And in activity, Yogananda says, unerring counsel comes through the intuition. And that joy returns to the devotee in his wakeful, active hours and service. And so putting the big questions aside of when shall I find God, this also reminded me of a, a beautiful account. Um, I recently read the book, The Man Who Overcame by Lawrence Eliot, uh, a biography of the great scientist, spiritual scientist George Washington Carver, who lived in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, I can't begin to give the greater account of the incredible, really miraculous life that George Washington Carver lived, but this is a rather more well-known little story that uh, later in his life, when his career had really taken off, he was a brilliant uh, scientist as well as a very spiritual man. He was a botanist and a mycologist and a farmer. And he taught at the Tuskegee Institute in the American South. And he, among many other things, he really reinvented the agricultural industry in the south because the lands had been ravished and impoverished by the cotton industry. And there was a pestilence, a a certain um, disease, a a weevil that had come from Mexico. The the soil was heavily depleted from this monocrop industry of the cotton, cotton plantations. And so among other things, what Carver taught was to reestablish the nutrients of the soil, and to diversify plantings and fertilize. And he introduced the peanut crop. Now the peanut had been recorded for some 3,000 years in the annals of agricultural history, but it had never been really utilized in this way. And Carver had done a wonderful thing by helping and coaching these farmers and these plantations to grow peanuts. They were edible and nutritious. They were easy to grow. They fixed nitrogen and other nutrients back into the soil. And they helped to break up this monocrop of king cotton, as they called it. And yet, there was no established market. And so while he had done a great thing, many farmers came to him complaining that their peanuts were rotting in the fields. And it wasn't like cotton, where it could be sold off readily. And Carver took his problem to God, as he was accustomed to doing. He would spend early mornings throughout his life out in nature communing with God. And in his discouragement, because he really wanted to help these people, and his heart was more than fully in this endeavor, he asked God in the silence of his soul, early one morning before sunrise, sitting out in nature, he started with a big question. He said, Lord, why did you create this universe? And he felt God's answer in his heart, and it was simply, my child, you ask questions that you cannot comprehend. Ask me something else. And he still went pretty big with his next question. He said, Lord, why did you create man? And again, God replied to him in his soul, and he said, little man, you still ask questions you cannot comprehend. Please ask me something else. And finally, the third time, George Washington Carver, he narrowed in, and he said, Lord, why did you create the peanut? And the response to this was overwhelming. He felt joy, and he felt divine inspiration overcome him. And he took that response, like any great devotee would do, into activity. And he took that inspiration into his laboratory because he was a scientist. And he spent nearly three sleepless days and nights experimenting on the peanut. He boiled it, and he mashed it, and he isolated its compounds. And he conducted some two or 300 experiments and came up with hundreds of uses and applications for the peanut, ranging from industrial to agricultural to dyes and uh, clothing. and nutrition, and on and on. And so taking this experience of God in meditation and prayer into activity imparts that divine response and that flow of divine consciousness into the world and into our lives as devotees. And there are many amazing examples of this. But ultimately, to get back to, The heart of the matter of the ground zero of our spiritual life is that sadhana, is that component of devotion which will purify the heart and make it fit to behold God. Swami Kriyananda says that the devotee should meditate every day on the infinite vastness. And so it is that we need to develop a relationship with God in our lives, both personal and impersonal, finite as well as infinite. And this can be done in many ways. And our path is rich with teachings and inspiration on this. Uh, Yogananda's little booklet, Metaphysical Meditations, uh, reading and reflecting and meditating on this chapter and on Master's poem, Samadhi. This book before me whispers from eternity. Uh, singing chants like wave of the sea dissolve in the sea and how shall I love thee Lord my God thousands of sons many many ways to experience this divine consciousness both as personal and infinite Um, I'll share with you just one inspiration that I've had recently and just a very simple way to put this into practice because Each of us must make this personal effort and be creative in how we enact that. I've taken to just saying a simple prayer uh, throughout my day recently, and the prayer is simply, I love you, Master. I love you, God. And then I'll just focus at the point between the eyebrows for a few moments and try to expand and experience that infinite vastness That is beyond those words and that simple prayer. And there's one more thing about this I'd like to share with you, which is I wrote these words on a little post-it note and put them in my truck. And so it's just to remind me. And my daughter, who is uh, seven years old, for those of you that know Tulsi, she's become a proficient beginner reader. And she got into the truck with me a few days ago. I was taking her to school. And she read these words, and she said, Dad, what's that? And I said, that's a little reminder, honey. And she said, but Dad, how could you forget? (laughs) And so we all know uh, the guileless wisdom and beauty of a child. But all of us are little children before God and needn't forget that his love is ever with us, and that through this worship of God, as both finite and infinite, we can and ultimately will behold God. Here's one more story I'd like to share with you from the tradition of India. And this is the story of uh, the well-known deity Ganesha, the elephant-headed remover of obstacles. And this is when Ganesha was only a boy. and His father, Lord Shiva, and his consort, the Divine Mother Parvati, were atop their abode at Mount Kailash. When uh, Lord Shiva was presented by the great sage Narada with a special mango, he was given this offering. And this was not an ordinary fruit. This was given to sage Narada after great austerity and worship by Lord Brahma himself. And this mango would confer great wisdom and powerful blessings upon the one who consumed it. And offered to Lord Shiva, uh, the greatest of all yogis, God as Shiva, had only one predicament. Which of his two sons should he bestow this gift, this mango upon? Would it be Ganesha or his brother uh, Skanda? And consulting with his wife Parvati, as any good spouse would do, Lord Shiva and Parvati decided that a race was in order, a contest. And it was decided that the first of the two, Skanda and his brother Ganesha, to encircle the entire world three times on their divine vehicles, their vahans, uh, would be the recipient of this special boon, of this mango. And now Ganesha was faced with a, a little problem himself here because he knew that his brother Skanda was far more competitive than he. And what's more, Ganesha's uh, Vahan, his divine little vehicle, was a mouse. And he could ride atop this mouse fairly swiftly, I imagine, but he knew that it was no, no match for his brother's uh, peacock, was his uh, divine animal that he rode upon. And so immediately as the race began, his brother Skanda took off on the peacock, zooming around the world and Ganesha was struck with an inspiration. He sat atop his mouse, and with a little smile, he folded his hands. Looking at his mother and father Parvati and Lord Shiva, he slowly encircled them three times and bowed before Lord Shiva, the infinite Lord. And seeing this, Shiva and Parvati were pleased with the wit and wisdom and devotion of their son and gave him the mango. And so it is that in our relationship with Divine Mother, with our beloved Guru, Paramahansa Yogananda, with whatever aspect of God we are communing with, with the saints, we need to go beyond to the infinite and worship in spirit and in love, the two sides of the coin of God. And ultimately, we will go beyond all form and not only will we behold God but we will become one with God and his love and joy will be with us always I've heard your
2: flute high on a cloud your call I can't resist oh let me come and play with We'll scatter music with the dew And sound the morning mist I've heard you piping on a hill All else I've set aside Oh, let us dance the mountain peak We'll skip with breezes on the creeks And soar the valleys wide Your flute has called me to the fields Now I've no place to live Don't send me back, rejected friend Whatever I call, mine must end All that I am, I give I hear your flute in every tree, in every flower and stream And sweetest melody of all A song that heaven's joy recalls Here in my heart you sing